Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Adventure Science Podcast. We've got a very exciting episode coming up today. Uh, today, I'm going to be interviewing one of Canada's foremost uh, bear researchers. You might have seen his work uh, on film or in print in magazines like National Geographic. And before we fully dive into the introduction, uh, the Adventure Science Podcast wouldn't be possible without the generous support of our sponsors, Merrill, Farm to Feet, Sumto, Canada Satellite, Stoked Oats, and Smith Optics. Today's interviewer, Matthias Breiter, is a woodsman, he's a biologist, and he's a cinematographer, uh, photographer. He's Canadian, he's a member of the Explorers Club, and his expertise is bears. Uh, so today we're going to discuss everything bear related, how it ties into using film and uh, photographs as a medium to communicate, and I'm going to let him tell his own story. So without further ado, uh, Matthias, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here. Well, thanks for having me. Yes, our pleasure. Well, uh, I think I'd love to learn how you got started on this uh, journey you've been on. Um, what got you interested in researching bears? Where did it take you? And uh, let's use that as a jumping off point. Uh, originally, it wasn't bears. I was interested in predator-prey relationships and as a biologist. And bears was just what happened. And I got stuck on them. And it all started out in the mid-1980s while I was at grad school in Massachusetts and then started to work in national parks and was initially a study of wintering behavior of elk, which then became a study of uh, wolf predation on elk, which then became a study of bears scavenging uh, wolf kills. And I got stuck on the bears. <laughs> and so... You entered biology uh, straight out of high school, as, as one typically does, or did you have some deviations before you got there? Did you know you wanted to do something in the wildlife biology realm? I was very much interested in working uh, in, in wildlife biology. Uh, it wasn't necessarily the Arctic. I wasn't that specific. Uh, later on, it just developed that way. But the, the interest was very clear. And... Early from the start, I was interested in also then depicting it in some way. So either it be photography or, or filming. I didn't really know how to go about it, but there definitely was the interest. So was it a chicken and an egg? Were, in your youth, were you playing around with cameras uh, still and video and then tied that into your interest in biology? Or had you already you know, been spending time in the woods, love camping trips and wildlife, and then you know, that interest to share it, as you just described, grew out of that. Starting as a little boy, I was always out in the woods. So there was always that well, feeling of relaxation, of excitement, of wonder being out in nature. And then my grandfather was an artist. So from the start, I was very much encouraged to express myself artistically. And initially that was painting. It was not photography. And I guess I got too frustrated with painting and uh, turned to photography and and early on then my writing was to try to support bringing the photography to the audience and uh, now it's the other way around uh, it's, it's kind of it switches around but it was always the, the interest was always to go out in nature portray it and then I think very early on there was that uh, teaching element 
like when I was at university, I was interested in teaching students. And I guess what I do with filming and with photography and uh, writing books, et cetera, is, is that's a teaching element, trying to bring nature back to people, try to educate and hopefully have an impact by doing so. Well, I mean, what I've uh, seen is that you've written nine books. Uh, I'd say that's quite an impact to, to have on people. Um, is, it, is it nine books? Have you written journal articles as well? What's, uh, what's your background with, with writing and how have you, what's the feedback you've been getting from people? Well, with books, I'm meanwhile at uh, 16 and three are in the works. So we're gonna be 19 by May. Um, wow. It doesn't say anything about quality, so numbers is, is a bit misleading. Um, it, like one really good book is more important than 20 lousy ones. Uh, <laughs> I, got, I got a lot of, well, a lot. It's always hard with this kind of work to really assess what your impact is. But um, over the years, I've received... On numerous occasions, uh, people coming back to me and telling me that whatever I've done has influenced their life, has changed their life. And images and stories were used in campaigns like campaigns to protect the Arctic refuge. And I was directly involved with it. So okay. there is an impact. Um, it's just often hard to assess what is the key impact that really made a difference. But it's it's like a school teacher. Like as a school teacher, you always hope that you have a very positive influence on the kids. And sometimes you, you hear that feedback that you made a difference. And it's the same for me. Sometimes I hear that feedback. Very often I just don't know. Right. Well, so you, you've started with predator-prey relationships. And I want to learn a little bit more about the, the evolution. So I lived in Canmore, Alberta, which is on Banff's doorstep, as you no doubt know. And... I mean, you would read about wolf kills uh, in the in the uh, local magazine. I mean, it happened right in the town of Banff. So a lot of that going on with the reintroduction of wolves in Yellowstone. We've seen a lot more uh, predator-prey interaction there with, you know, the bear actually doing a lot of the predation as well now. Uh, so how did that morph to uh, northern uh, climate in the Arctic? Well, it, for me, the interest in bears... Uh, developed very quickly after I first worked with them, just seeing them. Like predator-prey relationship, most predators inherently have to be secretive about what they're doing and are not going to catch anything. So right. most predators are reasonably hard to observe in the wild. And I was always, I did not just want to put radio colors on animals and then watch some blimps on a monitor. I, I wanted to actually observe the wildlife and bears are inherently good for that because they actually stay visible their actions are visible they're behaviorally very very complex and just captivated me and then i just moved up to the arctic um or sub-arctic like alaska mm -hmm. and uh, northern canada as there simply are more intact ecosystems i was less interested in observing uh an ecosystem that was altered by man than actually how wildlife acts and reacts if uh, it's still reasonably close to its natural state. Well, tell me more about your experience in Alaska. You were working with grizzly populations up there. That was uh, your primary focus? It's, when I started out, uh, 
the whole thing like walking with bears uh, that didn't really exist. Uh, so the the concept, the understanding of bears was much more uh, well misunderstandings. There was a lot of it was based on people observing grizzlies in the high Rockies where they are are in a much lower density where food sources are scarce, where right. interactions are often aggressive. And uh, I find found that through my work, I basically had to throw everything overboard that people had told me about grizzlies. And then I was one of the early ones who then started walking with the bears and started to actually uh, seeing that they're not these monsters, that they're quite social, that a lot of the things that I have read and heard about them simply wasn't true. So what are some of these misconceptions then that uh, you had to personally deal with? And I mean, mentally, how challenging was that to overcome? So I know what it's like to be out uh, and exposed in high alpine terrain and somebody tells you the route is as such or you don't know and you've got your own little mental battles to fight because, well, is what I'm doing safe or not? And, you know, I think that applies across the spectrum for adventurers and explorers and scientists. So when people are telling you that you've got to beware of bear behavior because, well, you're a food source to them no matter what, yet you graduate to the point of walking with them and living amongst them. How does, how did you transcend that and break through? It took years. It wasn't, uh, there were like key moments where just things happened and you realized what you've been told is just not correct. It, it just generally what was in the literature portrayed an animal under very, very certain circumstances mm-hmm. and did not really uh, consider other circumstances and other environments. And I had to relearn it all. I had to rediscover it all and, and uh, try to understand how wildlife works and I think we've come a long way since then I mean I've been doing this for 30 years now Uh, a lot of my initial ideas about like behaviorally how wildlife behaviorally works was considered uh, unscientific then in 30 years ago if you had anything that in, in your studies that would indicate uh, like comparisons to human behavior, mm-hmm. uh, it would have seen as uh, just well, unscientific. You were just, uh, yeah, leaving the realm of of objective science. It was just subjective. And nowadays, I think, uh, partly, hopefully, a little bit through my work, it has been shown that like human behavior and animal behavior are just expressions of of meeting our needs. It's not inherently different. And have, and learning that wildlife and bears are not out there to kill you. They just follow their own lives. And they have their needs and they, and they have to be met. And uh, as a rule, that does really not involve people in an antagonistic way at all. We usually not matter we usually don't matter to wildlife at all. They have their own way of surviving out there. We're just kind of strange visitors. Right. And as long as we interfere with what they need for their lives, they mostly ignore us. And that has been an ultimately always my goal, is just being ignored and observing the wildlife. And it, 
it took me a while to learn that this ignoring can go long, long ways to the degree that like bears will learn that you absolutely mean no harm to them, no threat, and will not interact. Like I always stop all interactions and they walk by you within feet, not paying any attention to you. So you will be near a feeding spot in a blind or just sitting camouflage or wide open when they have this non-interaction and just stroll by? Uh, bears and in, in generally wildlife, in birds it's a bit different, but generally mammals, uh, hiding is a very difficult thing as their sense of smell is so far beyond our sense of smell. They, they know you're around. And as a rule, things that hide are potentially a threat. Right. And predators hide. Predators sneak up. So if you behave like you're sneaking up, if you behave like you're hiding, they are more likely to see you as potentially a threat. Uh, they, as a rule, know you're there anyway. So just be open. Don't uh, look for a location where you possibly can get into conflict. Like easy one is that you won't, won't sit on a moose carcass. I mean, you're going to get into trouble. Uh, and the same is like not just with a, Not just with a bear either. There's cougars or yeah, wolverines no. or who knows what in the area. They're not going to uh, take kindly yeah, to you on it. Obviously, you avoid. And as long as you just don't really put yourself in a potential conflict situation, um, they ignore you. They, they have not really any interest in you. Bears, younger ones, uh, they will investigate you occasionally. Um, but they learn quickly that you just don't want to interact and they leave you alone. And younger ones are all reasonably easy to work with because they're at the bottom of the hierarchy. So they are the ones that are very much, uh, they're going to react, uh, submissively if you just stand your ground and I mean, the, the big bears are not interested in you. They've learned how to make a living. Mm -hmm. The young ones they're easily intimidated. There's an age group where you, you have to worry, and that age group I kind of stay away or more, are more careful about. Okay. Uh, and that's usually the ones that it's like uh, in, in humans, like uh, age group 15 to 20. They're investigating. <laughs> they're, trying to, they're trying to figure out their place in life, they, but they're big enough that they figure they can stand up to the big ones. And uh, those are the bears that you have to worry about. The, the big adult ones and the young ones, uh, they're not a problem. Interesting. So it's teenagers. It's teenagers, yeah. Same thing, <laughs> same reasons. Oh, my goodness. So uh, you've been at this for 30 years. You must have seen some really interesting uh, changes just in the way, as you alluded to, that uh, you know, academics view your work and uh, the interactions, uh, collaborations you have with them. But also, how has the uh, federal government in both Canada and the United States responded? I'm hearing that uh, they're looking to change hunting regulations in Alaska, and there's quite a bit of pushback with uh, hunting of uh, at least grizzlies in British Columbia and wolves right now. So are you seeing any work being undone there? And, uh, you know, I'd like to know more about the, the research angle and, and your collaborations. Well, I think the research on that is pretty clear. Uh, like particularly like bear hunting has nothing to do with 
uh, with any kind of like predator control that then boosts whatever other population. I mean, that's what it's in Alaska is again, uh, predator control is a big issue right now. Mm-hmm. Um, those that push for hunting as a rule, and then you kind of have to wonder to what degree that uh, has some psychological reasons why someone feels the need to shoot a bear um, and then put a trophy on, on the wall. I mean, that's what it's for. It's, it's, there's, no, there's no brown bear hunting for, for meat. Nobody eats brown bear meat. Right. So you shoot them. And uh, that's probably a good question for a psychiatrist. But <laughs> you have them with strong hunting lobbies and the, the politicians just... Uh, well, they just listen to whatever group they have to listen to at the moment to get reelected and to get support. Uh, like scientifically, there's nothing that would promote predator control. Really? So how is that? Because it is a strong argument that I've heard time and time again. And, you know, not being focused on wildlife biology slash ecology is my primary career. I, I, I guess notionally it makes sense. Well, the predator control is, it always comes up when there was really poor management of hunting game, like moose, caribou, whatever. And then the part of it, then predator control comes up, is one of the erroneous assumptions. If you remove all the predators, automatically your uh, game numbers will go up quickly. Uh, but as they, as a rule, don't change the hunting numbers because that would be politically uh, not very popular, it really hasn't had any impact. It wasn't the predators to start out with that caused the problem. Then the other issue is that predators, I mean, uh, you watch the natural cycles of lynx and, and hare, and like it is not the predators yeah. it's not the predators that can control the numbers. Uh, in a natural setting. It is the resource for like the hare, whatever food resource. The caribous go through cycle, not because of wolves are around, but because of the lichen and whatever other uh, food resource for the caribou that dominates that cycle. So if we now take out much too much game, uh, the predators have a much harder time to, to get food and their numbers drop by themselves anyway. Right. I mean, they, they are not the limiting factor to start out with. Taking a few of these predators out really does not solve the problem. The, the problem that comes later on is that you end up in an endless cycle of controlling predators and prey because it's really, we spend enormous amount of resources then trying to monitor the prey population, the predator population, and trying to balance it out. And like we've seen it like with sea otters, with all kinds of stuff. Um, if, if we try to then boost one population, they overgraze and then they collapse. Then we try to support that again. Then when we try to control the predators, it becomes an endless vicious cycle. Right. It's just not how nature works. And predator control has, in, in very isolated cases, if you have an isolated population, you can have an impact of predator control but that is then always used as the example of why it works but it's take, to, take, taken totally out of context 
in, in open systems, it just doesn't work. Right, right. Well, it's always uh, easy to prove a point in a closed or isolated system. But uh, yeah, as soon as you take those boundaries and extend them, it's much more difficult. So how familiar are you with what's going on in Yellowstone right now? To some degree, I mean, the reintroduction, it was controversial among the conservation groups as well, because the wolves were coming back by themselves anyway. Hmm. And so the, the question was whether they should have been introduced because of the genetic pool. Um, but by that time, it had been... Uh, a decade-long fight to reintroduce them, and when they get, finally got the approval, they felt, well, we can't now back out on it. We'll never get another re reintroduction approved if we back out of it now. Mm -hmm. So they, they introduced them, even though wolves at that point were already within 100 miles of, of Yellowstone established. Interesting. And so the reintroduction had massive positive impact for the environment in Yellowstone. It changed the riparian systems back to what it was before. Species right. diversity went up dramatically in Yellowstone. The problem was the ranchers around had lost some cattle and sheep, mostly sheep, mm -hmm. and uh, but they got reimbursed. Um, I, there is no rational reason why we cannot coexist with predators. It's possible. It's just a matter of whether we want to or not. Well, I mean, I find it interesting. I know with Yellowstone and the reintroduction of the wolves, there was a viral video that's been circulating for at least a year now that showcased exactly what you described, the return of the riparian system, biodiversity increase. And, you know, essentially it happened overnight, um, even though it took years, but uh, everything from stream bank stabilization to birds coming back and, you know, just all these fascinating uh, results of adding predators back into a system. So then on a larger philosophical question, how do we reintroduce predators to landscapes in your more populated areas is this something that should even be up for debate is it possible or are these interactions just going to lead to deaths eventually and uh, ultimate removal of the predator well i mean a lot of predators are around uh city systems to a much larger degree than we were when we are aware i mean there are mountain lions within the city limits of los angeles yeah uh, yeah so I think those that are against or try to come with uh, human safety as an argument that there shouldn't be any, they're really ignoring the fact that they are around. And we don't hear about them because they don't cause a problem. Right. We, as a rule, run into trouble when we have problems with other issues. Um, garbage with bears, it's mostly garbage-related. Mm -hmm. um, with wolves, big cats, it's mostly related what we do with deer and et cetera in the city environment. And uh, but we have in Kenora, we, we have wolves right downtown every year. And there has never been a human wolf incident. I mean, people lost some of their pets uh, to it, but that was a 
the worst that has happened. Obviously, it doesn't make anyone happy that is a pet owner, but right. it has not been a safety issue at all. And there are mountain lions. I've had, I have mountain lions in the yard. Really? I basically never see them. Well, <laughs> it, if there's deer around, there will be somewhere mountain lion. Uh, deer numbers have been going down in our area because of really excessive hunting. And which has then also drawn the wolves more into town because the only deer that are really in great numbers available is right within the city limits because you're not allowed to shoot them there. Right. And so it, it's to some degree, again, a human created problem where if you had a reasonably healthy deer population on the perimeter, at which proper management of hunting you probably wouldn't have the wolf problem. And there's similar incidents, like similar things that discovered, like in Lake Tahoe, that done research projects on black bears and, and other predators uh, around there. It's the problems that have arisen are human-created problems. It's not really a, a problem that is inherent with the wildlife. It should really be more a matter of how we address how we interact with our environment in general. It's not a predator issue. Hmm. Well, you know, I'm, I'm interested, though, in how do we interact with the environment? How do we interact with predators? Uh, on our farm in Quebec, Long Trek Ranch, you know, it's, we've got a thousand acres. Uh, it's very wild. And last year, snowshoeing came across a wolf kill or a deer kill by a pack of wolves in the area. And it was still very fresh. There were still organs uh, outside of the body. So, you know, I don't know how far away the wolves would have been for that one. My dog, uh, Gertie, she wasn't too interested in getting close by because I think, you know, the area just reeked of, of urine and everything else. But, you know, they didn't, they didn't come out. They didn't uh, try and bother us in any way. So they might have been further away or not. But, you know, everybody fears about stumbling upon a situation like that. Uh, in the Canadian Rockies, Trails in Banff will be closed annually uh, to any party smaller than four or six people for, for bear protection. If you look at statistics, uh, it seems black bears have killed more people than uh, brown grizzly bears. And, you know, that's probably due to a, uh, a numbers game. But, you know, how do we protect ourselves and, you know, perhaps anticipate these interactions or uh, at least do our best to mitigate them should we find ourselves in one of them unwittingly? Well, the, there are always potentials for obviously having negative encounters. There's always the possibility for just a bad bear, a bad wolf, a bad mountain lion. I mean, they, not every person is nice. Not every bear is nice. Um, the, but we can't really 100% control that. And be this is to some degree the similar argument as with driving a vehicle. I mean, there's the, the number of people getting killed in automobile accidents is vastly bigger than any wildlife incidents by a uh, oh, thousand times higher or much more. But right. nobody stops driving a vehicle. And so, do we have to make everything 100% safe? That, that's a dream. But we can certainly make it reasonably safe 
by just having uh, housing developments, uh, treating a lot of like with bears, it's particularly garbage, by just treating our garbage properly, don't have wildlife have access to it. Um, by planting certain plants around the house that uh, attract or or provide food for certain animals and not for others. I mean, there's a lot of things we can do. But right. We, so, so fruit trees, for example, is one of those ornamental plants you're talking about. You bring fruit trees into your yard and you're living in a rural area, you will invite potential trouble. You're going to have a bear in it at yeah. some point. And if you are happy with that, that's fine. But uh, you can't expect to have a fruit tree there and not having a bear in it. And the same if you if you have uh, like garbage just lying around, it's smelly. Something is going to get into it, and you're inviting problems. But I think overall, to this day, I mean things have been changing. But to this day, we are more have more the attitude that it's wildlife problems to stay out of our way than our problems to make sure that wildlife doesn't get into any mischief. Right, and I think mostly we have to change that attitude. It, it, it has to be that we show a little bit consideration to to the wildlife in in our actions, and uh, if we don't do that, we're going to have problems. I think that's one thing where we have an advantage over wildlife. We can actually kind of figure it out. We can predict what will happen if this and this, if we're doing this and that, and. With that, we also have the ability to to minimize any kind of area of conflict. And so far, we're not doing it. Right. Well, you know, that that's a great opportunity to segue to some of the uh, photographic and uh, film work that you've done in the past. Uh, let's chat about that. I mean, what... <sighs> What have your efforts uh, produced so far on that front in terms of helping to change people's minds? What stories have you been telling through walking with bears and, and others? Uh, well, the, you know, the walking with bears, it's, yeah, you're just trying to get across that like bear behavior. Bears are not unpredictable or not more so than any other wildlife. Mm -hmm. uh, bears just follow specific rules and you can interact and read them. Uh, with polar bears, I think uh, it has been for a lot of people much more of an eye-opener. Like I started working with polar bears 20 years ago, and early on everyone told me the same thing as with the grizzlies. You can't walk with them. They're just going to eat and kill you. And I don't know why in, in retrospect I never questioned that initially. It took a few years. Uh, but if you think of it, if polar bears were these type of killers, there would be either no polar bear or no Inuit. Right. I mean, there would be no existence in the Arctic. And I've now walked with polar bears for like the last 15 years. And I had like one incident that was a bit hairy. And that was probably a fed bear, a garbage bear. Really? And so with then the film, the documentary I did for Smithsonian on, on polar bear summer, it went a lot on just trying to dispel a lot of the misconceptions of polar bears and like they're not inactive in the summer they they feed like anything else they uh, they have certain needs like they're specialized for hunting out on the ice but that's not the only thing they do they interact they are social 
they're way more social than brown bears. And, really? Uh, I, I've seen polar bears in groups of 15, 20 bears in really? close proximity playing and adults, not, not juveniles, adult bears playing with each other with no food source around. And they will just congregate in certain spots. And, uh, well, the playing only happens if there was a food source, uh, like the beluga whale washed up or so. And then they feed for a few days and they feed socially. Grizzlies don't feed socially. And uh, then they play. And so they're way more social than than brown bears, hmm. which I found just fascinating. Like the, the whole concept of what polar bears uh, are for me changed entirely with, with working with them in the field. Well, that's interesting. We're planning an expedition to the Arctic this year. And I mean, we've all been practicing our shooting, which is something we never wanted to do. But with, you know, perhaps the mistaken conception that, uh, Polar bears only view us as a food source, and you know, if, if they're not catching seals or anything else, they're going to come after us. Um, and it's very different behavior than grizzlies. So you're saying that it's nece not necessarily the case. Are there some steps or measures? They are that... they're way more social than grizzlies. And generally, I would say that any polar bear is much less likely to interact with you aggressively than any grizzly you meet. Um, they're just more social. The, you're going to have curious bears, uh, but I've never encountered one that I wasn't able with behaviorally to back off. I've never had to use any, any shotgun or anything, and I could always just behave back them off, and that includes all, like, Thousand pound, fifteen hundred pound polar bears, and females with cups—they don't want to have anything to do with you. They—they mm -hmm. they don't come up anyway, unless they try to avoid a boar. I've had females with cups just seeking me out to walk around me to stay away from boars. So because the boars will prey on the cubs. They saw the boars as a potential threat, and the female decided I was the better choice. <laughs> and um, just hung around me with the cubs. Um, yeah, it, it, when you go through Arctic exploration, like I've then done obviously quite a bit of research, right. I realized that whatever I was told about polar bears just simply was not happening. This was not what's out in the field, what I observed. And so I went through like all like the, the early exploration of the Arctic. You can go through the entire Arctic exploration record of the British Navy and you don't find a single polar bear attack. Really? I mean, they were up there and they, did, they, they were walking all over the place. There was, well, there was not a single attack, not a single person injured. There, there's occasionally stories of oh, a polar bear came up to camp and then uh, sometimes they did nothing. Sometimes people shot the bear because that's just what you did. Mm -hmm. But there wasn't a single case of a person being hurt uh, injured, attacked, or anything. It's like you take grizzly, the grizzly, the, the bad reputation that the grizzly had from early on 
you can really go back to the Lewis and Clark expedition, where then a couple of incidents from the Lewis and Clark expedition were used to show, to demonstrate how aggressive the grizzly was. And when you read the expedition records, no such thing happened. There was not a single aggressive grizzly. It was just, it made up a much better story to write about marauding grizzlies than to write about nothing happening. And that was already happened, the, the case during the Lewis and Clark expedition. So when the, the reports were written out, it was written out to sound more adventurous. Right. Well, I mean, the, the Revenant just came out, right? And that was, that featured around a, a sow with cubs that um, that attacked uh, DiCaprio and put him on his uh, uh, mission, right? Correct. But you also, like when I uh, then read the reports, you always have to remember that you obviously read the reports that the human wrote down that survived. Mm-hmm. You did not hear any report that the bear had about how the whole thing went down. Right. And so it's uh, history is always made up by the winners. Exactly. So, but anyway, so yeah, the polar bears, I think, are there's a total misconception. The, the wrong thing to do is obviously now run around up there and uh, behave like there is no, you don't have to be careful. That, that's not the case. But if you are careful and if you know what you're doing, the chances of you running into trouble in the Arctic are almost never wildlife related. It's related to logistical issues. Like all the 99% of the problems that I had with my work was always airplane problems, boat problems, weather problems, but it was never wildlife problems. Yeah, it's, I mean, that's what we've heard about uh, the area that we're planning to uh, to work, which is King William Island. So uh, low lying, lots of fog, not a lot of uh, clear days to fly in or out. So yeah, it's the logistics is not the, the bears up there, but still through, uh, you know, your risk analysis and, and planning, you have to plan for everything from bad weather to potential wildlife. Yeah. The, like King William, I mean, there is a, there is an area north where I know there's polar bears in the summer always hunting belugas, and I always see them there, and they always have numerous beluga carcasses. Uh, but I think that is most of the bears head right there. They're not on King William. Um, they there's not too many places where you have good uh, feeding conditions in the summer in the Arctic. Well, I've Two, two questions then. Uh, one, how, unless it can trap a beluga, how the heck would a polar bear prey on a beluga in the summer? Um, like I've, belugas go into coastal rivers and, co- and uh, shallow bays for a number of reasons. One is to have, uh, have their young. The water is just warmer, mm-hmm. right, in these shallow areas in the river mouth. Uh, the other thing is that there are fish spawning right along shore, hmm. and so they feed on that. And some areas, uh, with the tidal action, uh, they almost run dry, that belugas almost get stuck. And polar bears obviously know that. Then there are 
base, like I've seen situations where belugas uh, go frantic when there are killer whales around and they almost beach themselves. And uh, so the polar bears, like all the bears, they're basically uh, specialized on utilizing a food source that becomes plentiful one moment and then live for weeks without feeding. I mean, that's right. what bears are specialized around. So, you know, as general area where there is belugas, uh, you may not see any bear hunting for weeks at a time. And all of a sudden there is a circumstance that might be tidal, that might be fish frenzy, that might be uh, orcas and, and uh, polar bears will kill 20 belugas and then feed on it for another month. Wow. Um, so it, it is not something you regularly see, but I've watched uh, polar bears sitting in a river mouth on a rock, jumping on top of beluga's back. Yeah, just and, crushing the blowhole. Uh, trying to keep it to the bottom, so that's one thing to, uh, oh, really? to, to drown them. <laughs> uh, it's a heavy bear, like you have a 1,500-pound bear, and you have shallow water, and then... Uh, I mean, it has to be very shallow or the beluga just gets out of there. Um, the other thing is they can stun them, just hitting them hard. It's it's only the biggest bears that are able to do that. Right. The 1,500-pound male or so. And uh, But, I mean, that's another thing in bear society. It's the, the biggest one that do the most kills, but they never eat at all. They eat the fat, and then they leave the rest and so younger ones feed on the rest uh, the other thing i've watched with with polar bears with belugas that ch to this day i find odd behavior i will see a male feed on a beluga carcass and he'll feed for three four hours and it must take his stomach a day or two to just digest it because that bear will actually leave and then there's other bears feeding on the beluga and uh, the bear doesn't, uh, the, the original one that killed the beluga, uh, does not defend the kill. So there is, you don't have to have every bear being able to catch a beluga to really feed a good number of a population. Really? Um, well, I mean, it's, my head's spinning. This is, uh, this is so fascinating. I feel like I could talk to you all day. I have... Two final questions now before we need to wrap up, because I promised you we'd try and keep it around 45 minutes. One is we've seen so many photos that are now just ripping across social media about these emaciated bears and the ties to climate change and um, sea ice and difficult access to their food source. And then I also want to get uh, a mantra from you before we wrap up. So, yeah, let's tackle the uh, emaciation question first. Well, the so global warming obviously will have an impact on polar bears. Polar bears are uh, sea bears. I mean, they are dependent on sea ice for their survival. Like summer feeding is not sufficient to like maintain a polar bear population indefinitely. It just helps them to get through the summer to get some feeding. The most of the feeding is in the winter. So the less ice you have, um, the less opportunity to hunt effectively. Uh, is all bears are ambush hunters. They can't just run something down. Right. And the ice is a hunting platform for them. So if you have less ice, 
the carrying capacity of the area may go down, but there is, it's not always necessarily so. Like, uh, there used to be way more marine mammals in the Arctic uh, prior to the whaling industry. And certainly the number has not bound back to what it used to be. So potentially a lot of habitat to this day is not at its optimum carrying capacity because you just don't have the same marine mammal numbers that you used to have. There are seals, but uh, they would have also fed on like humpback whale carcasses, et cetera, which are now very few and far between. So it's not just the ice. So there's other factors that come in. Then there is also that uh, some areas, there might have been too much ice uh, in the past. So marine mammals need breathing holes. If there's too much ice, it limits that. So some areas may get better polar bear conditions than they used to be. So overall, uh, polar bear numbers seem to be still somewhat stable. If the warming trend continues, it will certainly go down. And if there, if we get at some point to the stage where there is no sea ice anymore in the winter, there will be no polar bears anymore. It's not like they can adapt to not no ice. There's other animals that have adapted to that. Mm-hmm. Um, when you see emaciated ones, can that be related to um, to global warming? Sure, it can be. But uh, there's always bears that died, and there's uh, there's always been like the survival rate of bear juveniles is about fifty percent, and most of the ones that uh, don't make it starve to death. So it, it's not necessarily that an emaciated bear means that it's due to global warming. The well, yeah, it's, it's always the context behind it. You, you've got the juvies or the yeah, seniors who just they're not capable of hunting the way they once were due to what tooth loss or something like that right well there's old ones i mean obviously old animals some point die uh but young ones overall survival rate of young bears uh from birth to until they're like reach sexual maturity is maybe 30 percent of all cubs born wow more likely less than that so the and a significant number of those are either killed by other bears or uh, die of starvation. So it, that is not really truly related to global warming. The, the global warming, there is no question global warming has a severe impact on polar bears. And like northern Alaska, it's quite extreme right now. In other areas, it's less extreme. Uh, But I think what has been ignored with the global warming issue, like when you look at overall, like why are grizzly numbers a fraction of what they used to be prior industrialization? It's habitat loss. Right. And uh, like a big conflict comes just industrialization, mining, uh, farming, whatever, that you, you can have grizzlies theoretically, climatically, still on the prairies, but there is just no space for them. The biggest thing that we see in the Arctic right now is really an industrialization of the Arctic because the area becomes much more accessible and profitable for big industry, for mining, oil exploration, 
you have to go towards fishing industry. Uh, I mean, a lot of the oceans are totally overfished. The last oceans that still have significant fish numbers that can be fished effectively are really the Arctic and Antarctic oceans. And that's where the big uh, factory trawlers are moving to. And with less ice, they will push more and more into these areas. And that is a, a huge potential impact on polar bears. And people have really, to a major degree, degree ignored that. They focused very much on the direct temperature issue and less on uh, change of human use, use of these areas because of the temperature uh, or ice conditions getting more uh, moderate compared to what it used to be. Well, Matthias, that's uh, that's a very fascinating uh, outlook, and you know, I'm like I said before, my head is just spinning. You've uh, you've turned some of these uh, well conceptions I had into misconceptions, and uh, I'm I'm grateful to you for it. Uh, I'm certainly going to have other questions as we get closer to this Arctic expedition that I'll be shooting off to you by email. But thanks so much for taking the time to chat today. I really enjoyed it. I think our listeners will as well and uh yeah really uh, really grateful and uh, all the best with your work what have you got coming up for the next few months well i have to write three books in the next three months so that's something i uh, keep on working at um then i uh several expeditions in alaska several expeditions in the canadian arctic um uh, Alaska, some of it is caribou, mostly it's brown bear, um, and Canadian Arctic is all polar bear. Wow. Um, try to learn more. And uh, when you asked me about like what is like my mantra, is, uh, I guess my mantra is that like nature is not a luxury, it's a necessity. And so environmental protection is not something that we can only do or should only do if we perceive it that economically we are able to. We, we have to do it all the time for economic health and many other reasons. Mental health, physical health. Uh, and I think, I think we as a society should learn that nature and our environment is, is a necessity. It's not a luxury and to keep it wild and and healthy. Well, I, I couldn't agree more with you. That's, uh, that's an excellent mantra to live by. And if we can all do our part to help share that message and encourage our contemporaries and the younger generation to adopt it, well, we and the rest of the planet will be better off for it. Well, thanks again, Matthias. All the best. Enjoy uh, the remainder of your, your frosty winter up in Kenora, and good luck with, uh, with the next books. It's a heavy workload. Yeah, no, it somehow always works out. Great. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. You take care. Bye-bye. You too. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this week's edition of the Adventure Science Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about Adventure Science, you can visit us online at www.adventurescience.com. You can find us in the social media realm at adventure underscore sci for Instagram and Twitter, or you can find us on Facebook at Adventure Science. 
Technical assistance for the Adventure Science Podcast is provided by Olivier Hubert Benoit, and Adventure Science wishes to thank its sponsors for making this possible. Merrill, Farm to Feet, Stoked Oats, Sunto, Canada Satellite, and Earthcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.